All right, if you will, let's open up to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. We are continuing our new study, our verse-by-verse study of this Gospel, uh, written by Dr. Luke, recording all that happened in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And right now, we are at that portion of chapter 1, where we have a young girl, teenager, from the little hill town of Nazareth, and she's had her life turned upside down by a birth announcement from an angel, Gabriel. She is now with child uh, by the Holy Spirit, and wondering who in the world could believe what has happened to her, wondering who could relate to her and understand what God is doing, she takes a trip over a hundred miles south, south of Jerusalem, to another little town. We don't actually know what the name of this one is, but we know that Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, lived there. And so Mary has come to her cousin Elizabeth because she too is having a miracle child. John the Baptist, in fact, at this point, she is six months into the pregnancy. And you can imagine the sweet time of fellowship that Mary and Elizabeth must have had together, talking about what God was doing through them. But here in this passage, uh, Mary had greeted Elizabeth, and uh, you remember the baby leaped in Elizabeth's womb when he heard the voice of Mary, and Elizabeth responded to Mary's greeting with what can only be described as a is a Holy Spirit-inspired prophetic word. And so we saw Elizabeth's greeting to Mary and the kind things that were said, the wonderful things that were said. But then, just as throughout the Bible, we see God mark important moments in biblical history with song, we find the Spirit working through Mary to sing of what God is doing in her. And so we have what's called the Magnificat in verses 46 through 56. And it's called the Magnificat because of the Latin translation of that first line, my soul magnifies the Lord. And this is a song that has been a blessing to God's people ever since it was written down for us by Dr. Luke. Now, we've already spent one Sunday looking at this song, and we're going to spend another today and then finish next time. Uh, But let's read the song first, and then we'll see what God has for us here. So beginning in verse 46, this is the very word of God. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham. 
to his offspring forever. And we have that last verse. Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home. Well, when I look at this song, I see three distinct themes uh, in this song, which is why we're, we're preaching three messages on it. Last time we looked especially at verses 47 and 48 and the beginning of 49, where we see Mary praising God specifically for his goodness to her. Praising God for the good things that God has done to her. And, and we talked about our responsibility as believers to give glory to God, to magnify the Lord, not by keeping the things that God has done for us to ourselves, but by speaking of them, and by proclaiming them, by living a life of, of not just actions, but words, where we are showing others our God has been good to us. The final theme of the song that we'll look at next week is the faithfulness of God. He, he has remembered his, uh, his mercy and what he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Our God is a promise-keeping God, and that's where we'll be next time. But beginning at the end of verse 49, down through verse 40, uh, sorry, verse 53, we see Mary singing about a great principle. And this is kind of the meat of the sandwich. So if this song is a sandwich, okay, uh, then the first loaf, God's been particularly good to me. The bottom loaf, bottom piece of bread, you could say, is God's goodness to Israel. But the heart of the song is this principle that we are unpacking this morning. And it is this, God's mercy is for those who fear him. God's mercy is for those who fear him. You see that there in verse 50. And that is the theme I want to impress upon us as a church this morning. <clears throat> Do you know your need for the mercy of God? Where would we be without the mercy of God? Now, when we talk about mercy, we're talking about undeserved kindness. And what this principle is teaching us is that God does not give equal mercy to all people. Indeed, God is not obligated to give his mercy to anyone. This is a principle about God's sovereignty. He gives his mercy to those whom he chooses. And who is it that he chooses to give his mercy to? To those who fear him. This can be difficult for us sometimes because we often think that somehow God is constrained to give people mercy. I remember years ago hearing R.C. Sproul teaching on this. I think I was in college and I had a little cassette tape of R.C. Sproul teaching and I won't tell you about my car. It was falling apart then. And anyway, and I would listen to that thing while kind of going down the road. And I remember R.C. Sproul talking about a professor. And she gives her class the assignment of a literature paper that's due. And the due date comes and the students say, oh, you know what? We didn't quite get it done. We need another week. And, and the professor very kindly, mercifully, graciously said, okay, okay. I'll give you another week. And so they take another week on their paper. 
Well, then she assigns the next paper. And when the due date comes, the students all say, oh, we, we don't have it. We, we need another week. And she said, I'm sorry. You get a zero. You fail the paper. And they say, no, no, that's, that's not fair, right? Remember, you showed us mercy last time. But you see, just because she showed mercy one time doesn't obligate her to show mercy again. Because as soon as it becomes something that's due, that is, as soon as it becomes an obligation, it's not mercy. So sometimes people look at the grace of God and they think, well, well, God has shown grace in this situation or God has shown grace to that person. Therefore, he is obligated. No, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy in Romans 9. And this passage gives us a characteristic of the ones to whom God shows special mercy. And so if you are a Christian, this ought to be something that marks you. Because you're a recipient of God's mercy. And if you're not a Christian and you say, I want to know what do I need to do to receive the mercy of God? Well, here is step number one. Fear God. Now, I wonder, is that what you would have thought to say? (laughs) Is that where your mind would have gone? But that's that's where Mary is. And that's what she's singing about. God's mercy is for those who fear him. It's the same thing Jesus would later teach when he said he came to call sinners and not the righteous to repentance. That is, those who are full of themselves, those who are walking in pride, those with low low thoughts of God, they're not at a place to receive God's mercy. They have hardened their hearts. Their soil is like cement. The, the, The seed of God's word won't bloom. But for those who humble themselves, for those who know their sin, And for those who have high thoughts of God is the only one who can save them. Those are the ones who will be recipients of God's mercy. What does it mean to fear God, biblically speaking? To fear God is to esteem God highly and reverently. How are your thoughts of God this morning? Is there fear of God in your soul? The fear of God does not mean that that you tremble the way you maybe should have when you were an unbeliever, that you're afraid of his wrath. If you're a Christian through Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. You do not need to fear the wrath of God. It has been taken. It was poured out on Christ for you. That's not what we're talking about here. The fear of God in this passage is a holy, healthy respect for who God is. That he is the almighty, that he is all wise, that he holds your life in his hand and that every good thing you have comes down from him as the father of lights. Yes, he is your father, but your father is also the king of the world, the one who speaks and galaxies come into existence. And so we ought to have a humility in our hearts. This is what makes up the fear of God, a high view of God that causes us to have a healthy humility about ourselves, a reverence for God that causes us not to think arrogantly about ourselves, but to see us as what we are before God, which is what? Small. And the fear of God includes having a high regard for God 
that shows itself in a carefulness to believe all that he has spoken and to obey all that he commands. And I'll be honest, I can say all day long that I have high thoughts of God. I can say all day long, I really believe that God is truly awesome. But if I am not careful to believe what he says or to obey what he commands, I don't think of him highly. When we care about someone and when we respect them, we pay attention to what they say and we heed it. Our fear of God will show itself in the way we live. We live in a day of licentiousness. We live in a day when if you're serious about keeping the commands of God, you'll often be labeled a legalist. And if anybody at all begins to think that you're serious about saying, oh, I can't do that because God's word says this. Oh, that's legalism. No, there is such a thing as legalism. There is such a thing as trying to obey God in order to earn his favor. And that's wicked because our favor has been given to us through Christ. But if you fear God, it will show itself in a holy regard for his law. A holy regard for his commands because they are good and they are wise and they bring blessing. In Isaiah 66, the very last chapter of that book, uh, verse 1, our God says this. Listen as God talks about how great he is. He says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. You think the earth is big. I mean, think about what we are on the earth. We're... we're You're a little speck of a speck on this planet called Earth. But God says, Earth is my footstool. That's when I I sit down in my chair and I put my legs out. I I set my feet on Earth. He's trying to say, do you see how big I am compared to, to Earth? What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. This is God saying, remember, everything you've ever known, everything you've ever seen, it was my idea. I did it. I built that. I made that. You want to earn my favor? Yes, the temple is great, Israel. You built me a temple as I commanded. That is, that is wonderful. That's not going to earn my favor. You want my favor? Here's where it begins. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is the one to whom I will look. God sees everything. God knows everything. But God is saying, this is the one to whom I will give my merciful attention. This is the one to whom I will look upon with blessing. Whom? The one who's full of themselves, working for righteousness like the Pharisees? No. The one who knows their own sin. The one who knows that they are small before God. And calls out in humility. And so this is the principle that's really at the heart of Mary's song. God looks with mercy. God looks with blessing on the lowly, the meek, the humble, those who fear him. Uh, Gelden Heiss, a commentator on Luke, says this principle entails a complete reversal of all human opinions of greatness and insignificance. 
In other words, if we were to go out around this church and we were to take a survey and we were to pull the people around the reservoir community and ask them, what do you think makes a person great? And if we were to ask them, what makes a person insignificant? Okay, I don't think we would find answers that match up with what's being taught here. Because what's being taught here is that true greatness is found not in being great yourself, but in humbling yourself to receive the greatness of God. Humbling yourself to receive the blessings that God gives. Think about what's happening here. If we had planned what was going to happen in the Christmas story, we would have never selected this unknown teenage girl from this mostly unknown hill town, honestly, redneckville town in Galilee. But this is God choosing the lowly in order to save the world. Uh, our, 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 our nation, our world, our culture looks at the, the, the athlete, right? With all of that natural talent and, and that athlete may be cocky and may be arrogant and that, that athlete may not care about others, but, but that athlete has skills on the football field or skills on the basketball court. And, I, and our culture says that's greatness. And the little old grandma who can't even get out of her rocking chair much anymore because her, she hurts with arthritis. Our world would say, well, she's insignificant. But she knows God. And she's humble and she trusts God. And we won't know till kingdom comes the ripple effect of her life and her impact and what God did through her. We need to have God's assessment of things. Not the world's assessment of things. This is a principle of sovereignty. He has mercy on those who fear him. It's also a two-sided principle. And hopefully that will help you understand where Mary goes in the rest of this song. It's it's a two-sided principle. Yes, those who fear God are recipients of his mercy. Those who do not fear God should not expect his mercy. Those who will not fear God should only expect judgment. So it's a two-sided principle. Those who continue to live without the fear of God, those who continue to live as self-declared enemies of God, those who will not humble themselves but continue in rebellion against God should only expect His judgment. And so that's the reverse side of this principle and we see it throughout the Bible. In 2 Kings 17, uh, we're learning there about the people that the Assyrians brought into the land of Israel who were not Israelites. They were just brought into the land of Israel. And 2 Kings 17, verse 25, at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them and killed some of them. So a direct connection. They did not fear God. How did God respond? Judgment. Lions. Or a great example is what happened with Judah. Turn with me real quickly to Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5. Just as an example of this. Jeremiah chapter 5 beginning in verse 20. Declare this in the house of Jacob, proclaim it in Judah. 
Verse 21. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord. You see the issue. Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. In other words, look at the ocean. If you look at the ocean, you will fear me. Because I made the ocean. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away. Your sins have kept good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? See the pattern of this passage. They did not fear God. They did not humble themselves and have a high reverence and respect for God. They were not careful to believe his words or to obey his commands. No fear of God. Where did that lead to? There is no bounds to their evil. Rampant disobedience. Even the fatherless and the orphan being abused. And where did that lead to? The judgment of God. Exile in Babylon. The Babylonians come in and destroy the nation. So yes, God's mercy for those who fear him, for those who will not fear him, great judgment. And can I just tell you something? What happened to Judah was a picture of the human race. Because Romans chapter 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed against man for all kinds of unrighteousness. And you say, why is God so angry at the human race? Why does God have wrath against the human race? And in Romans 3, Paul uh, outlines it out, right? He says, there's none good, no, not one, none who seek for good, all do evil. And then he gets to the very end of the last sentence of his case against the human race. And the words found in Romans 3, verse 25, there is no fear of God before their eyes. At the heart of the human problem, at the heart of the human condition, at the heart of all our sin, my sin, your sin, is a failure to fear God and to recognize Him for who He is. Two-sided principle. It's a holy principle. Uh, you may have noticed the very last words of verse 49 in our passage. I'm back in Luke 1 now. Uh, in the last words of verse 49... Uh, Mary says, holy is his name. Holy is his name. And a name here is describing the person. The name captures who they are. So when Mary says his name is holy, she's saying everything God does is holiness. 
And that's really important before this principle. Because what she's saying is this principle is just. This principle is right. It is right for God to have mercy on those who humble themselves before Him. And it is right for God to have judgment on those who will not humble themselves before Him. Because God is worthy of fear. Worthy of respect. God is worthy of reverence. To fail to reverence God is evil. Yes, God is praiseworthy, meaning he's worthy of praise. And if you don't praise him, that's sin. God is also fearworthy. He is worthy of your reverence and respect and your trembling before him. And if we fail to treat him that way, if we treat God as anything littler, smaller, if we demean him, that is wicked. And we should expect the judgment of God. All God's ways are holiness. Holiness is his name. This is a holy principle. You remember the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is presenting us this picture of how to make sense of a world in which if you have a secular worldview, there there is no God active in the picture. And he talks about how all becomes vanity and meaningless And by the end of the book, he is arguing for, yes, we ought to live before God. We ought to serve God. Indeed, here is his conclusion to the book. This is what he says is the great principle. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Solomon says, you want to know what wisdom is? I can sum up wisdom for you in two words. Fear God. And as we've said, if you do that, you'll be careful to obey what he says. Notice that this is an eternal principle. Do you notice that Mary says in verse 50, from generation to generation? In other words, this principle that God blesses those who are humble and judges those who who are not humble, who are prideful, that principle is not just a first century Israel principle. It's not just an Old Testament principle or a New Testament principle. It is an always principle. It is an eternal principle. Because God is holy, there will never be a time in his holy heart when he doesn't love all that is good and therefore bless what is good and which he doesn't hate what is evil and therefore curse what is evil. To not fear God, that is evil. God will always curse that any generation, any time, any place. To fear God, to humble yourself before him, God will always bless that. He will bless it any time, any situation, any place. It's an eternal principle. And then in verses 51 through 52, it's a very practical principle. I I hope you don't think we're up here just talking theology for you to hold in your head, but it has nothing to do with the way you're living on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. In fact, all that Mary sings about now is just illustrations of this principle and how it shows itself in life. Uh, Verse 51, uh, he has shown strength with his arm. In other words, God uses his strength to prove this principle true. This is not like a law that's unenforced. This is an active principle. This is a principle that God is upholding by his own hand. He uses his strength. To carry out this principle, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. I think immediately of the Tower of Babel. Right? 
Arrogance in their hearts. God had said, you're supposed to disperse. You're supposed to spread out. You're supposed to multiply. You're supposed to fill the earth. And in the arrogance of their hearts, not fearing God, they said, no, let's come together. Let's build a tower for our own name. And God scatters them. Verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Think of the king of Assyria. Mighty man, yes. Arrogant man, oh yes. Think about the tiglath Pileser's of the world. And yet what happened to the Assyrians? God used the Babylonians and took them down. And then what about the Babylonians? Well, the Persians took them down. What about the Persians? The Greeks took them down. What about the Greeks? The Romans took them down. What about the Romans? Well, they kind of took themselves down by their own pride. Ultimately, it was the, the Goths. There is no human throne that has ever lasted because God opposes pride and pride is always incipient and grows in places of human power. This is what makes the birth of this new king, Jesus Christ, and the days of Mary so different because here is a king who will live in righteousness and his throne will last forever. I think especially here about Nebuchadnezzar, right? Think about his pride as he's looking out over his kingdom. This is the kingdom that I built with my own hand. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. How did God bring Nebuchadnezzar down? Made him like a beast eating grass in the field. He exalts those of humble estate. Mary and Elizabeth are a good example of that. Joseph in Genesis is a good example of that. David, the least of his brothers, a good example of that. Uh, God's people today, God's people are often mocked and belittled and persecuted. Sometimes we're scorned. Sometimes we're outlawed and imprisoned, even killed. But if not in this world on the last day, every one of God's people, including you in this room who are Christians, will find yourself exalted by God. We are seeing this in this passage. We're seeing in the choice of lowly Mary to be the mother of the Son of God, the revolutionary principle that comes to full fruition on the last day. Mary is not whom we would have been chosen, who would we would have chosen to be the mother of the Son of God. She's just not whom you would have picked. But there she is. Nazareth is not where you would have picked to be his hometown. That's where he comes from. You would not have expected the Son of God to be born in a manger. But there he is. And when we look around at us, not many of us are of noble birth. Not many of us are famous, rich, esteemed by the world as something great. But God has chosen to set his love on us. And like Christ, we will be exalted on the last day. If you want to be great, if you want to be truly great with the greatness that only God can give, the greatness that will show itself in fruition when God's people shine like the stars in heaven, here is the way. Fear God. Humble yourself. Uh, Verse 53, he fills the hungry with good things. We think about the hungry, who, uh, how God provided for his people, for example, through Joseph going to Egypt when there was that terrible famine. God worked through that to bring food to his brothers. We think about the manna in the wilderness. 
We think about Boaz being used by God to provide food for desolate Naomi and Ruth. Think about Jesus feeding the multitudes. Those who fear God and call out on him in their hunger, God feeds them. And what about those who live in pride? When it talks about the rich being sent away empty, it's talking about the arrogant rich. It's talking about those who do not fear the Lord. Their riches will be lost. Maybe through death or catastrophe, maybe through invasion, that the riches of one person ultimately passes to another person. And their riches are lost. I had so much more I want to say, but I'm running out of time. Let me just say that it's no accident that Mary ends her song talking about the faithfulness of God. Because here's what I just said throughout this whole sermon. I've been saying God blesses those who are humble and he judges those who are arrogant. And when you look at the world, is that always what you see? Or does it not sometimes look like it's the arrogant who are being blessed and like it's the humble who have the most trouble and strife in this world? This is why while we see every once in a while this justice, this principle happen in the world in a way where we can see it, the true fruition of this principle will be on the last day. And so we want to hold fast to this. Let the world do what the world's going to do. But we are to hold on to Christ. We are to fear our God. We are to be careful to hear his word, believe it, and obey what he says. And as we do so, we're holding to the truth that he is faithful. And if not in this life, on the last day, he will exalt us as we find that we get to share in the glory of whom he is forever. And as he crowns us, what's he really crowning? His own grace. (laughs) His own wondrous mercy. That he's shown to us. So Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church. I don't know what the week has a hold for you. I hope it won't be too hard. But here's what we've been called to do. Fear God. Let's do it. Let's pray.